Welcome to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring live talks from the Sydney Opera House. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Antidote and our conversation, Australian Genocide. They say it's not an easy conversation to have and it can be hard and difficult, but I think for our three panel members and myself, it's not so much a hard conversation to have. It can be a dangerous conversation to have for us as First Nations peoples because we have a responsibility to our clans and family and a responsibility to how history and truth-telling is done in this country. So welcome and thrilled you are here and taking that big, brave step to hear our voices. We have three speakers on our panel this afternoon. Oh, by the way, my name's Rhoda Roberts and I'm a Bundjalung Widjibal person and I'm the head of First Nations programming here at the Sydney Opera House. So on my left, Professor Larissa Berendt, uh, she's a professor of law and director, and was the director of the Jambana Indigenous House of Learning at the University of Technology. Larissa is an academic, filmmaker, lawyer, and of course, is a host on ABC Radio. In 2002, she won the David Unipan Award and the 2005 Commonwealth Writers Prize for her novel, Home. She's a board member of the Museum of Contemporary Art, a board member of Tramby Aboriginal College and a director of the Bangara Dance Theatre. And she was named 2009 NAIDUC Person of the Year. Next to Larissa is Julie Goff. Julie is a visual artist amongst many of her skills. Since 1994, she has exhibited in more than 130 exhibitions, including Divided Worlds at the Adelaide Biennale, Defying Empire, National Gallery of Australia. And she has a PhD. God, she's such an academic. She's got a PhD from the University of Tasmania, a master's degree, University of London, and a bachelor degree in visual arts, prehistory and English literature. And her short fictionella has been, is being published? It's published. It's published. She's produced by a published event. Her artwork is held by most of Australia's state and national galleries, collections, and she is represented by Brett Gallery in Hobart. And our third speaker is Nayuka Guri, who is someone that is inspiring a whole new generation of writers. Her work spans social commentary and features in publications such as The Saturday Paper, The Guardian, The Lifted Bow, NITV, television writing for black comedy, and Get Crackin'. They have featured in the queer stories going postal, more than Yes or No, and Growing Up Queer in Australia anthology. Nayuka was a recipient of the Wheeler Centre's Next Chapter scheme, and is writing a book of essays exploring contemporary colonisation. So welcome to the panel. And before we get started, I just want to 
go back to what First Nations means to people and how that identity, um, I guess, is a focus of our lives and very much an embodiment. So I'll start with Larissa. If you can tell us your country, landscape, clan, and what that all means to you in today's world. Okay. Um, thanks, Rita. Um, so uh, my um, grandmother was a Uwalarai Gamilaroi woman and was stolen generations. And my father also grew up in a home. So I had sort of two generations of dislocation. But I grew up always knowing we were Aboriginal, but it wasn't until I was about 11 that my father went through the process of finding the removal certificate for my grandmother, going back home where people remembered her. She'd passed, so there was that tragedy of the loss of never finding reconnection. And in fact, her brother died three months before my father got home. So, in you know, it's a very mixed... Um, a very mixed experience when people travel home. The reconnection is life transforming, as it was for my father and then for my brother and me, to find our language and our clan, our totems, to know the history of our country. And my father spent a lot of time recording language and oral histories. He helped put the Uwalarai Gamilaroi language together and because of his experience of using the archive and connecting to family helped set up Link Up. So I guess we came from a family that has strong connections to our traditional land, even though we didn't get back there until the late 1980s, and actually grew up in Sydney. Um, I've known Rhonda for more years, Rhoda, sorry, Rhoda for more years than it's polite to, to say, but in a way I'm also a product of that diaspora that's here. I feel very connected to Redfern. The, environment we grew up in with black theatre, our parents doing black theatre, our generation, you know, starting Bamali and Bangara, um, but the ALS, the AMS, I feel like I'm also, as much as I'm a product of that land and that country and that language and that history, that I'm a product of Redfern and the po I feel the politics of that have shaped me. I think that's it's a very big part of my DNA. One of the very things that Larissa did, which was incredibly brave at the time and just so young, went off to Harvard. <laughs> Pretty amazing. Yeah, it's one of those things where you don't really know what you're getting into when you do <laughs> agree to do it, but it, it was. And actually, I should say, in a way, that, that, that was a profound moment for me too, and not so much because of the education, but I think one of the things I felt when I landed there was I actually still felt my Aboriginality really strongly. And I think that was a really important moment for me to realise I could make any choice I wanted to. I could be in this elite institution all this way from home and the family and community that I'd never been away from before. And it was such a big part of me. And I think that was a, a really important part of me feeling that it doesn't matter what choice I make in life, that my Aboriginality is a really strong part of me. So I'm very grateful for that experience of going overseas. And Julie? you want to tell us a little bit about country? Yeah, yeah sure. Um, so <coughs> my country's uh, Tebrakuna, far north east Tasmania. So it's known as Cape Portland on the maps and a big national park as well nowadays. My mum's side, we're Trawalway people. So that's our original name of um, our clan. 
We were, uh, my ancestors were removed to Flinders Island in, um, by the early 1830s. So two, two generations were um, taken there and um, one generation younger, um, a, a girl who called Dalrymple when she was a child was taken as a servant to Norfolk, called Norfolk Plains near Launceston and she was part of this a, a form of diaspora way back then of children being placed across the island, um, separated from family way to, uh, yeah, be a kind of servant class of, of uh, black children. So um, our family were um, successful. Our, she herself, this uh, Dalrymple, was successful in having her mother taken back off Waibalina, back home to mainland Tasmania. But from that point on, we've also been um, a bit isolated through um, living around the Latrobe region from the 1840s whereas um, many of the families stayed out on the birding islands, um, Aboriginal Tasmanian families. So there's uh, another family in the south as well that um, came back earlier, in a sense, back home as well. So there's different stories of different impacts from being exiled from country and also not making it back to home country, but now we are all responsible for the whole of Tasmania, Aboriginal community in its broadest sense. Um, we were so close to being completely annihilated with 47 survivors from Waibalena and then probably the same number of people in, um, Aboriginal people in the islands surrounding, including my ancestors that then came back to Tasmania a bit earlier. Um, my dad's a Scottish immigrant after World War II. My nan moved to Victoria during the Depression and so I have a two-generation gap of not being in Tasmania, which I think is why I feel this um, compulsion and um, yeah, to, to learn what has happened to our people and work my way forwards, but I've only made it to the um, 1840s, really. I'm still trying to work out what the hell happened mm. in Lutruwida, uh, which is one of our names for our island, um, and so I'm sort of trapped in Lutruwida, Van Diemen's Land. I'm not, I can't really talk about Tasmania, because that's later, in, in a sense. It's a long intro. That was a wonderful intro, thank yeah. you. And Nayuka? Um, so, both my parents are black um, and both from Victoria. My mum's a Gauri, so, and also she's, um, so where Gauris are, I'm going to talk a bit if we get a chance. Um, I spoke to mum earlier about our, as we talk about massacres as though it's this political and historical thing and often forget that our families survived them. Um, so I was talking to mum about massacres, so hopefully I'll get a chance to um, talk a bit about our family and massacres. But um, yeah, so we're Gunajamara, which is Western Victoria, um, and also um, Gunai, which is Eastern Victoria. Both, um, they're about 600 k's away from each other, but they're both kind of lake di districts. So um, our family from Lake Conda, uh, which is recently we kind of made international news out there because one of our um, important, like, eel trap sites has been World Heritage listed, um, which is pretty awesome. Um, yeah, really, really cool. A lot of hard work down that way. Um, so that kind of, that country is really, it's really cold. Uh, it's a bit depressing. No, it's not depressing. It's it's beautiful country, really, a lot of stone. We used a lot of stone, so we had stone houses and kind of manipulated the landscape or engineered the landscape to build those eel traps using stones. Um, 
So I guess some of the, yeah, the world's first engineers and architects. Pretty cool. Um, and then, yeah, my, on, in Gippsland, um, it's also a lakes district, so my family are from a place called Bangyanda, or Lake Tyres. Um, and for me, Lake Tyres or Bangyanda is like home home. It's where I'll, um, if I don't live forever, it's where I'll be buried. Um, that's kind of where my, where I, where my heart is. Um, yeah. Um, so that's mum's side. And then dad's side, my dad's a Bamlet. Um, it's a big kind of family, um, Wiradjuri and Yorta Yorta family. Um, and also an Onus. So Onuses are also Gunajamara. Mum and dad aren't related. Um, yeah, so feel, I feel really lucky to come from families that have strong connections in Victoria. Um, growing up, I was just thinking... Um, like all the different places that make us, um, because, because of family violence, our family, like, in a way, was displaced. Um, we would have grown up in Gippsland, um, but because of family violence, we kind of fled to Queensland. And in that, Mum ended up marrying a Gurangurang man, so that's around Bundaberg. So I have really strong ties and family up around Bundaberg as well. Um, so... I'm a Koori, but sometimes I feel like a bit of a Murray as well. Um, yeah, that's my family. Thank you. And, and for me, I'm a Widgeable woman on my father's side. Um, on my grandmother's side, she's Camilla Roy. Uh, my children's granny, great-granny, is Barkindji. And um, our river system and territories extend through the border, which is another interesting mm. issue about massacres and how they were documented once Federation occurred, because our borders were very different. So our territories extend to the Logan River in the north, to the west to the Condamine, and south to the lower Clarence River. We've had many massacres on our site across the Richmond River, and we were known as the big scrub people, so we're rainforest people going from the mountain to the sea. So they say it's a difficult conversation to have, and we know that the latest statistics have proven that 70% of Australians do indicate that there were atrocities that occurred in this country. So I have to ask our panellists, why don't we have the conversation and why should we be having the conversation now? So, Larissa, I might start with you. Um, well, I think that's a difficult question to put to a panel of Aboriginal people in a way, because I don't think we've had any problem with this conversation. This is a part of our history, it's a part of our families, it's a part of our oral tradition. Um, it's, it's quite closely related to the here and now for us, and in a way it's similar to the experiences around the child removal policy, where that was a very big lived experience that affected it, almost every Aboriginal family, um, and has an intergenerational aspect to it, so it keeps on going. So in a way, I, I don't think it's a hard conversation for us to have. I think the bigger question is, why is it such a hard conversation for the broader Australian community to have? And I don't know that I'm best placed to answer that. I think... Um I think colonisers have a pretty real and vested material interest in not talking about it and not being accountable because once you become accountable, 
or if you actually, yeah, I think once, once there's a full understanding of what's happened or an acknowledgement of what's happened, then you kind of, there's the sense that you have to make up for it. And I think, I think that would have implications for things like sovereignty, reparations, um, land, own, you know, where, who owns the land, which is the biggest thing that we don't really talk about, and things like what it means to be an Australian, like potentially our law. Um, but I think it's the transfer of land and wealth that I, is behind that, yeah. Yeah, I feel um, just recently I've, I've been um, exhibiting in Hobart with a large exhibition focusing on this very topic, really, the tense, past tense. And um, colonists, I was mentioning earlier that colonists, landholders coming to see the exhibition and then approaching me individually. Um, and there's a, such a tense uncertainty um, about what, what might be the conversation. And, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not... I can't, I can't really say, can you give us back the 75,000 acres, please? It's sort of, how do, you, how do we progress towards at least a discussion about what has happened? And, uh, and access is even um, difficult. So I'm really approaching it along the lines of let's, um, even though it's kind of we saying, can we access what you own as a, in a legal document is it's um, difficult, but we're going that pathway is kind of happening across Tasmania. Access, so there's traditional, um, uh, so Aboriginal uh, burning and land management techniques happening on larger estates that are not owned by our people in the legal sense. So yeah, it's really it's really a long way to go. There's a long way to go, but it's making relationships to see what may um, work in the future. So some families are actually handing land back to us through this kind of engagement that can take decades. Rita, could I just yes. jump in there? Because mm. uh, Nayuka and Julie um, just um, have really prompted my, me to think about this. And I guess what I was thinking about when I was listening to them speak is that, um, you know, when we do try and... I think the other thing to remember is when we have had moments where we've tried to have this conversation, and I think about when the Bringing Them Home report came down, and that's a moment where there is a huge documentation of experience, thoroughly researched um, account of the impact. And the response to that wasn't actually an opening up of an honest conversation. Mm. It was an attempt to try and shut down that experience. You know, a government response mm. that says it's only one in ten, a statistic that is so contested anyway but takes away personal history. And, you know, I guess people would remember that one of the big debates that happened around that time was the use of the term cultural genocide in that report and what a huge backlash, almost a dismissal of the whole report because it had the audacity to, to describe that, that enormous impact of that policy as cultural genocide. So, you know, I think there's, it's important to remember the huge pushback we get around these kind of semantics when the opportunity does arise to have those conversations. So it's probably an important part of the mix there too. Uh, it's interesting because I was going to bring up terminology mm -hmm. because how it's framed from our perspective to what we're reading, hearing or seeing in our media, government policies, various other things. And I've noticed in a lot of conversations around the world, in fact, with other First Nations, and I'm seeing it now occurring in 
Australia is when we talk about the invasion, it's been twisted and shifted to the settler. What's your views on that? It's it's so um, it's uh, all of Tasmania is presented in that manner as a yes yeah, settler and a convict society, a place to look at heritage as something imported from Europe, and people go on cultural tours about that. So yeah, there's this sort of um, it's uh, kind of concealing our Aboriginal story and history and place. So what has world heritage status in Tasmania? Our colonial estates such as Woolmers and Brickenden near Launceston, where you feel um, we're being elided and um, yeah, more and more opaque each time there's funding or attention. The Heritage Festival, the Heritage Week in Tasmania is a colonial heritage. Not, there's no Aboriginal heritage in Heritage Week, for example. So we just have to really battle all the terminology all the time. Uh, such, and so, yeah, refusal to use the word settler, for example, but it keeps coming from outside as well from um, institutions and academics who um, undertake settler studies. What is that? It sounds like testing a bed or something, doesn't it? <laughs> mm. do you, what sort of terms do you use when you're writing about this? Well, I do use settler. Like, I don't think it bothers me as much as... I think... I think using... Well, I think any kind of blanket term can kind of... Ob what's the word? I'm pregnant, my brain's like fucking fried. Ob <laughs> what is it when you, ob ob there we go, that one. Um, you know, blur, to hide, you know, lump it all in together to hide the meaning. So I think there are, there are different words that we can use and, and there are different relationships and different ways that people have come to the country that I think, mm. um, like, a, you know, the way that an asylum seeker would come to the country is very different from someone who came as, say, a convict to someone who invaded or... like, and they, So I think that there are just so many different relationships that people have with our country. So for me, it's, it's actually the relationship people have with our country and our people that, um, that I'm more interested in. I don't know. Maybe I'm just covering up the fact that I use that word. But I think, I think finding the most appropriate words is a good thing to do. But for me, it's based on the relationship people have with and how our sovereignty is kind of a part of that, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I often use the word colonial just because I think it describes the agenda and the process. So, definitely, you know, I, I'm, I guess I think carefully about that that and I'm, I'm obviously very comfortable with the term invasion but for me the term colonial really clearly can indicates the agenda of colonization and the project that it that everyone's a part of and you can start to unpack however those dynamics work but that's the project um, and you know I was just thinking that sovereignty again is another word which we use very comfortably and it describes something very real for us but you know, over the years, that's also been a contested term. I can't tell you how many, especially in the legal context, people say, oh, you shouldn't use that word because it's not like Aboriginal people are sovereign like under international law. So that's the complexity with which 
or the, the narrowness really of the mm. definition. There's always this, as we find a word that describes how we feel or our politics and then we're told we can't use it. And I'm often reminded of this thing that one of my aunties said, which she said two things. One was, um, I was asking her about, you know, um, this concept of sovereignty and she said, well, I don't know what the word is in the English language. There's probably one in ours, but I don't know. And she said, English is a really impoverished language. And I often come <laughs> back to that, that there are these terms that have multiple definitions. And when we try and use them to co-opt it into our own agenda, we're told, mm. no, 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 that's not the word for that. So in a way, we're sort of trying to colonise us again. And also language changes as well. Like the goal, goal, I feel like English and like white, like Australia or whatever will change the goalposts. So as soon as even people don't, there are white people who don't like being referred to as settlers. Even that clip of um, Arnie Pauline Hanson recently with that <laughs> amazing, incredible young black girl where she was... Like, we're seeing this part of genocide where now white people are, like, claiming to be Indigenous, like, we're at that part of genocide. Um, but, yeah, it's just... It's interesting the way that words are... Yeah, co I don't know, the goalpost shifts and mm. think once you think you know what something means, like, white people will change the definition. Anyway, it's strange. If you haven't watched that clip, it's really, really, really good. Um, yeah. Well, I recently watched um, an element of um, the opening of the football, Adam Goods's um, documentary. And it was really interesting because Stan Grant then had a, a, a lecture series where he was saying, you know, looking at genocide and the impact and that the Australian dream is actually the Aboriginal nightmare mm. and that we don't fit into that dream at all. And it got me thinking about often when we talk about what's happened in this country, it's always in the past. And we think, okay, well, you know, you people need to get over the past and move forward, as we often hear. But in fact, the past, the present is really our future. What do you think have been the sort of legacies of that whole issue of genocide in a social, a political, a personal reasoning on your lives? That's a big question. So you want to start with the, the cultural. I can jump in. Um, yeah. Because I was mentioning before, it's my family, um, just, I just had a chance to speak to mum and just on her side, um, with our, because mum's dad is black um, and mum's mum is white. Um, so just on, through her father, there were at least two different massacres at my ancestors directly survived. So they were there when the massacre happened. They saw their people get killed and then they were kind of left behind. So one of a couple of people that survived. I think there was maybe a handful of the Gorries over at Gunajamara Way and then a handful of, um, I think 20, yeah, one of my ancestors who was a Hammond survived, was one of 20 people who survived. So I think about what this does to, and you've got to think these, Every black fellow would have stories like this in our family. So what, is, what does that mean? We know that trauma can, does change our DNA. We know that trauma like physically manifests itself in our bodies still today. Um, so historically that's happened, but then we also have current things that happen. So you actually never get a chance to get over the initial thing that happened 
So we've never, we've never had a breathing. We were talking about this before. There's never that time to relax or never that time to breathe or whatever it might be because there's, there's just always something happening. Um, so personally, I think I see that in my family and I don't want to sit up here and say, oh, you know, everything's so hard because I'm actually very privileged, but I can see in my family that we have like complex mental health issues. We struggle with things like poverty and things like that. We're also very strong and very cultural and that sort of thing, but, like, the reality is, like, well, both of those things can exist at the same time. But we feel this. This is something that is felt, that we... And so if we feel it, surely those who did the killing also have something in their DNA. Um, so that's, a, I guess, a personal thing. But then I think politically or structurally what the ways that massacres present in, say, 2019... So this morning I was thinking about well, what was the intent of a massacre? I think the way that we, the way that when they are acknowledged by, say, white politicians, it's written off as like a, an occasional event that was, you know, retribution, it was an emotional act. But we don't, there's rarely acknowledgement that it was systemic, that it was purposeful. Um, and they were, they were really, really intentional in the way that they were carried out, um, particularly on my Gunajamara side. They were like plant, like poison flower. They planned these sort of things. And it served a purpose. Massacres served a purpose. They, it was about eliminating us, getting rid of us from our land, dispossessing us of our land, and also, I think, discouraging dissent. So if those were some of the intentions back then, I think about the way that those intentions manifest now. And I think we can... I'm thinking about the way that black people, say, are incarcerated could be a really good example of the way that those intentions manifest right now. Um, I was also looking at, I was looking at the killing times this morning um, and saw that, so they found, and I think this is an extremely, extremely conservative figure, but 270 mm -hmm. frontier massacres in a 140-year period. Um, and only one of them resulted in any kind of white prosecution, which was, of course, Mile Creek Massacre. And then linking the way that prisons kind of eliminate black people from land and lock us up away from our communities and our land, thinking about deaths in custody in a similar way, how the judicial outcomes, say, for massacres and also for, say, finding cops who kill black people accountable for their actions, it's actually a pretty similar figure in terms of being accountable. Um, anyway, I'm rambling, but I think, I think we see genocidal intent everywhere in this country. Can I just say that it's not rambling? No, <laughs> no. absolutely and not. Secondly, I think um, I couldn't agree with you more that I think in so that you, we talk about what the legacy is and, and that connection to what's happening now is a really important part of the conversation. Because in some ways it's easier for people to feel like this is something of the past and the, the issue is how do we talk about that aspect of the past in our contemporary society? What's our, what's our narrative? What's the national narrative around that past? Nayuka talks about the direct correlation between the control of Aboriginal people, their bodies, the attempt to physically control, and I would add to that that you need to also look at the increasing rates of Aboriginal child removal today, which has almost doubled since the apology, and if it keeps going at the rates it is, will be at the same level um, in 2024, 2024 that it was during the formal policy. So there is an informal 
policy of child removal that is having exactly the same effect. So if you look at the, the kind of justice control of bodies aspect, and worse for on Aboriginal women in terms of mm. incarceration, 100% of children in the Northern Territory in the juvenile system are Aboriginal. That's up from 96% when they did a Royal Commission. So it's increased since then. Um, so you have the, that aspect of it. And then you look at the continual desecration of Aboriginal land, mm. the fight against mining, the fight against fracking that is happening across the country. Mm. And all of those elements that were part of the colonial process, the, um, the, the, the control of bodies, the taking of land, the taking of children, the um, unravelling destruction of culture, they have contemporary things. And that's actually the bigger conversation that confronts Australians. Sure, think about the story you want to tell about history, but what's the story you tell about today? And just on that, I mean, as a filmmaker, I mean, the killings still occur in various different types of situations. And it always amazes me when the Port Arthur massacre occurred. It was described in the media as the worst massacre of Australia. Mm. Mm -hmm. And... I know with your filmmaking and the Barraville stories and things like that, and you look at justice and the way the system works towards situations where investigations of murder and so forth have not occurred as perhaps they would have had it been, and is this a fair question, had they been an Australian, would the investigation have gone differently? Do you want to just yeah. jump in? Do you want to jump in on yeah, that, yeah. Port Arthur? Was, um, well, no more about the the level of massacre in Tasmania, which is twenty. It was twenty eight years of one ongoing massacre mm. because there isn't there isn't almost a breathing space between each one, and it, the whole island. There's nowhere where it didn't occur in terms of removal and deliberate and ongoing. And the, where I see a real parallel is the um, position and power of the media because the newspapers were, um, if you read Trove, the newspapers, historic newspapers online, you can see the same rhetoric and um, of the colonists and the, uh, the government to in, kind of incite the, incite the colonists to write in and say we must, these savage furies must be destroyed, this is us, you know. Um, and then our land values will be dropping, no more colonists will come, like just this... Um, on and on and on about government must do something, um, and then the government did step in, but it, and um, in an effort to supposedly protect us by removing us. But um, if they they only managed to um, find 200 people across the island to to remove to Flinders Island, so by then anywhere between five and ten thousand people had been, had um, disappeared. So it's um, the media's position there and now in causing, um, yeah, deadly, deadly impact upon peoples that are those not in power. It's um, really incredibly similar, and uh, just just the the way that the military operated in empire is really important because um, we have various regiments brought in the 40th regiment, 57th regiment. Um, and it was called a military campaign against our people and it did operate in that way, which... So it, it, it seems like it is from London, in a sense, and the military came f to or from India, to or from South Africa, to or from the West Indies, and they took, their, they took the men that enacted um, this upon us off-country. And so there's this sort of... It's hard to, to grab, 
you know, the people, the, the descendants, and have the conversation if they've been removed so purposefully off our country afterwards? Well, it was silence. It was state-sanctioned. It's empire it was poison at work. shootings. So clever. Militia. So deliberate. I think yeah. as well, mm. like, with the port, like, they haven't memorialised the guy that killed everyone either, like that white dude that just, they... Like they haven't erected bronze statues. They haven't, they haven't named lakes after this guy. So I think that's another thing, being Aboriginal. You are, you are forced to kind of... I live around the corner, like the one street away from me. It's a street called Henty Street, and it's named after a family that were responsible for the death of so many Gunajmara people. And it's just, it's a head fuck every time I have to see this street. Mm. We, we're forced to, like these, that breathing space is not there because on top of all the shit that's happening, the contemporary colonisation, we also have to see these white people be memorialised, whether it's, you know, Lake Macquarie, Macquarie University, blah, 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 blah. It's just, yeah, mm. it's wild. Anyway. And there are other ways that the state actually reinforces mm. those things. And I was just thinking uh, from your question and sort of acknowledging your own family's experience with this, but there's this irony for Aboriginal families, Torres Strait Islander families, that we are much more likely to be imprisoned, but we are also, if we are victims of crime, much less likely to get some form of justice. And we see plenty of cases, you mentioned Barrowville, there are a plethora of, particularly where Aboriginal women are the victims, mm. where there is no, there's no, no interest in the state in finding justice or resolution for that. And that's also, I think, a bit of a, 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 a legacy of those earlier attitudes. And if I could flag the other place where I think that there is a systemic legacy, um, it's actually, and this, it relates to the deaths in custody side of it, but I think it's really important to draw this out. Because the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody itself highlighted that a lot of the deaths that occurred were actually due to medical negligence. And that still is the case where a lot of the deaths that are investigated that go through the coronial process, it's as much the negligence of medical practitioners. Mm. Um, you think of Miss Dew's case where she's pre she presents with pain and they assume she's after drugs. She's not physically examined because of assumptions. And we actually see that happen to Aboriginal women outside of the criminal justice context. Pregnant women... Naomi Williams. Is Naomi there. Williams is, a, is, a, is an excellent example of that and just one example um, where there is still stereotyping. So I guess what I'm flagging is that there is a sy systemic racism which can actually cause harm, results in, in death, that actually also needs to be a part of this conversation, mm. that that is a legacy. And those things aren't... And unconnected. You can't have the conversation about massacres over here and not talk about what these issues are in contemporary Australia. And all of those elements are elements of the state. And I think that whole conversation of truth-telling, I mean, until Australians uh, can recognise that the value of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people to this country, and that particularly the value of women, because we literally, and we see it in comedians in their material, mm. that Aboriginal women are still not valued on the level of any other woman in the entire world. Would you agree with that? Or 
Yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. That was yeah. Bang, <laughs> silence. Yeah. 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 To have this conversation, and it's a conversation, I guess, where you use the term post-apocalyptic that we live in, in our communities and our clans across the country, to move this conversation forward and to have this conversation. And often I think it's like reconciliation. We seem to be the ones who have to have the answers. What is, where, where do we move from here? How do we go about truth telling? It just uh, seems up to us, which is hard. Like up to me to say, can I, can I go on, can I walk through your gate and walk on our country that you've held since this amount of time? Or it's, it's a hard slog to make the approach, but then, you know, it's such a, it's a dance between building something that isn't there really, between, mm -hmm. between the um, descendants and us, descendants of who it was enacted upon. Yeah, it's each each conversation is very tiring, but you can't. It's not like one conversation. It's, it's each place and specific events, and what what needs to happen because it's also about the healing country that's mm. in big trouble. Well, I think that's one of the other things is to heal country to do obligation. Mm. That was a responsibility of people when people are consistently split apart, mm. that knowledge gets left. And we're at a stage, I guess, where we are rediscovering and revitalising a lot of that old obligation. Mm. But is there, you know, is there this opportunity of a solution or where do we next, what's our next step? Personally, I, I don't... I don't want my personal or family or community's healing to be predicated on white benevolence. I, I think we'll never, if that's the case, we're fucked. Um, yeah, I think, like, what is, I'm interested to know for black followers, what, what can we do in our communities to heal? Um, and to what, it, what, a question that I'm kind of stuck on at the moment is, is healing possible without accountability from, like, mm. can you, how, how much healing can you do without real accountability for those who've harmed you and your people? So I think for white fellas or other people who aren't from here, um, there is no panacea. I think there's no, no, no one's going to have the answer. I think it means getting, it means a lifelong commitment to doing what you can do. Um, and it does mean I'm, Seriously, it means the transfer of wealth and land. Um, like you have, it's not, your feelings are not enough. We need, yeah, we need our country back. Um, so that's a start, but there's just so much more. Stop voting in fucking dickheads as well. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to go to the floor for some questions very shortly, but Larissa, yeah. if you could just... Um, well, I couldn't agree more with the last one because... <laughs> You know, in a way, they're the laws that continue to really stuff us up. So, but I guess I'd just say two things about that. I'm always struck by how generous our community is in terms of continuing to share their stories, especially people who have suffered great trauma and will continually share that with people. Um, I guess for me, it's been one of the shifts in my own practice of being an advocate to now 
trying to find spaces like film to get mm. to, for other people to to tell their stories in their own words. I think that's a really big part of our project is making sure those stories have a home and a place and are heard. And then I think, you know, there, there is the responsibility when you hear those stories to be open-hearted and compassionate and empathetic and not feel like you're giving up something if you hear that somebody else has got pain, mm. but taking responsibility for the fact that they've shared that with you. And it probably goes back to the question you asked earlier, Rhoda, which is, you know, um, the, the, the idea that actually these, these aren't new conversations for Aboriginal people, but it is actually an existential crisis for non-Indigenous Australia. And I actually think that's where the work needs to be done. It's not... Those two things are intertwined. Our fates are intertwined. We are intertwined on this land and our future's intertwined. I mean, I'm actually quite optimistic about the future. I work towards the idea that we will have an Australia where all Australians see Aboriginal history and culture as part of their history and culture. It's not to appropriate it, but that we share this country. And that's, that's the vision. So I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic, but I feel if we're going to get there, the hard work isn't ours. I actually feel that there's that existential crisis. We see it come up all the time when these issues... Aboriginal Australia's history holds a mirror up to non-Indigenous Australia and they're yet to find the courage to have that debate with themselves. That's a great point to end on, but also I'd just like to say for our three panellists, one of the things that stands out for me in the practice that they all work in is they are deep listeners and they have to be. They know that's their obligation, but their work shows through deep listening and humanity stories unravel and can be told. And if we accept it as interconnected histories, maybe that's a step towards having this dangerous conversation. Thanks for listening. And please rate and review Ideas at the House in your favourite podcast app. You can also listen to more Sydney Opera House podcasts at sydneyoperahouse.com slash podcasts.